Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning to everyone joining us online. I am so excited to be up here today. Today we are starting a journey through the book of Acts. Okay, I expected more like, wow. Um, come on, Acts, come on. Um, you know, and my prayer, and I think that the collective prayer, at least the one on my heart today is, I really pray that we as a community of faith do not go through this just in some dry study, but that we see and are compelled by and are challenged by what the Holy Spirit did through ordinary people, through 120-ish people that were left after, after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, about 120 people left following Jesus and what the Holy Spirit did in pouring out into them and moving them to change the history of the world. And that same calling and the same power and the same mission is on us today. And so as we walk through this, my prayer, and even today as we start, and you all know that when you start a book of the Bible, there's so much background information, there's so many like logistics to get through, but I pray that even today as we do that, that the fire of God will burn in your hearts and stir us out of complacency and stir us out of defeat, stir us out of just that sight that we get on our circumstances and not on what God can and wants to do through you in this world right now. Amen? I'm just gonna tell you, I'm coming in hot today. I am just like, <laughs> Kim is like, do not get up there and diminish. I'm like, oh girl, I'm not. Mm, mm, mm. So few things. Acts shows us how the early church was caught up in what God was doing on earth and how they stepped boldly forward to join him. This is where the supernatural gifts and presence of the Holy Spirit flowed, and we can ask and expect God to do it again. And I can't think of a time when we need the presence and the power and the gospel to infiltrate and transform our world more. So let's approach this with that in mind. What we're gonna do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start from verse one in chapter one. If you have a Bible or a device, please go to it. And I, can I say, if you're not in the habit of reading the word of God, get your butt in the habit of reading the word of God. Because here's the deal. We, are, we don't, as pastors and leaders, we don't exist to disseminate the word to you like this is the only time you should get this in the week. No, no, no. If you only eat once a week, you will die. If you only eat the word of God once a week, you're probably already dead. I'm just throwing food at a dead body, and it's just not good. So let's stop that crap now and get in the word. Okay? I'm coming in hot. <laughs> All right. So Acts 1, chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to, the way I'm going to do this, I'm going to read, and when there's things that we need to stop on and focus on, I'm just going to do it, and I hope we'll get through it, and if we don't, I'm going to make Brian pick up where I left off. We're probably going to be in Acts for a long time. We'll stop for Christmas, and you know, any time we have to divert to the baby Jesus or something like that, but we're going to be here for a while, so settle in, my friends. Acts 1, verse 1. By the way, Acts was written by Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And Luke was not one of the 12 disciples. Luke was a Gentile convert, which I find beautiful that the largest book in the New Testament was written by a Gentile. 
that should say something to us. And that one of the gospel accounts was written by a Gentile that never would have happened before Jesus came to make things right and to bring the kingdom. So let's start there. Luke saying this in verse one. In my former book, Theophilus, not the book Theophilus, he's writing this to a person named Theophilus. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, pause, I'm gonna do this. Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. And so when you read in, in the, the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, whenever you come to something that seems like about the physical body or commentary on the physical body, we have to understand there's a significance there because Luke, who cared and knew about the physical body, will mention things about the physical body. And why would he say when he was eating with them? Because, number one, ghosts don't eat. Y'all, Jesus is alive. Physically alive, not just in spirit. And that was one of the things that when, when we preach about Thomas and Jesus saying, touch, touch me. It's one of those things that Jesus is demonstrating for his followers as evidence that what he said is real. Jesus is still alive. Does that, okay. I'm gonna try that again. Because our savior who is not a ghost, but sent the Holy Ghost. I know it gets confusing. <laughs> Jesus is alive. Our Savior is alive. Thank you. And Luke's saying, because he ate stuff. Okay, good. Was he, he was eating with them. He gave them this, this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for my gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to back up a little bit because I mentioned this. He wrote this book to Theophilus. Theophilus, well, as Luke was a, phys a physician and a Gentile convert, not one of the 12, he wrote and dedicated not only this book, but the book of Luke. If you read in the first couple uh, verses in the book of Luke, Luke 1 says, many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of things that you have been taught. Just as a side note, Luke was not only in his gospel account, but in the book of Acts, all the commentaries that I've read on this, he was so incredibly historically accurate. Luke had a passion for accuracy and a passion for detail and a passion that what he said could be relied upon as truth. And when he's writing to this Theophilus, probably another Gentile friend or follower of Jesus, but the funny thing, Theophilus means friend of God. And so I wonder, I mean, some of the commentaries alluded to this or thought about this, but I wonder if Theophilus was a pseudonym, a, just a name he put over the top, maybe to protect the identity of the person that he was writing to and giving this account to, 
maybe that. Maybe also the term friend of God can universally apply to anyone who reads these accounts. Maybe it was both. Probably it was both. But the passion that he's writing this to and the passion that he wrote Luke and the passion that he wrote Acts and the detail is to communicate to those who are friends of God the truth and accuracy of the accounts of what actually happened. So when we read this, read this knowing how intentional and detailed this man who may have, some speculate, may have never even seen Jesus, but heard and believed, heard the accounts, investigated the accounts, and dedicated his life to telling. So in one sense, Luke is you and me. I've not seen Jesus, but I spend my life telling about him. And we can learn from Luke that same passion. Amen? Let's move forward. Okay, I think I got to verse five. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse six. Then they gathered around him. This is Acts six. Then they gathered around him to Jesus and said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now we have to pause again. Now, I don't know if you've read this, if you've read the gospels, if you've done a historical understanding of what the Jews were expecting when the Messiah came. They were expecting a political and military Messiah. They were expecting that when God sent his Messiah down, he was gonna deliver them from the circumstances of occupation of Rome and all the oppression and all the injustice and that Messiah was gonna come and he was gonna kill the Romans, gonna kill them, put them in their place, gonna rise up the nation of Israel because Israel historically, and you can read this in the Old Testament, they did not wanna be ruled by God and a spiritual kingdom. They wanted a king, they wanted power, they wanted authority, and you know, in the Old Testament, God said, fine, here's your earthly king, and it did not go well, ever, for them. And somehow in the process of the disciples walking with Jesus and seeing everything that he did, still this question, came on their hearts and minds when Jesus was ready to ascend back to the Father and soon send the Holy Spirit. He was, they were still, even if it was not fully expecting this kind of kingdom, they were still hoping. And somewhere in the back of their mind is a collateral, yes, the kingdom of God, but are you also going to take all of these circumstances and this oppression and this military occupation and all this stuff, are you gonna, is, is this gonna go away? Because somehow they were still hoping and still missing the point of the kingdom of God and still believing that maybe when, God, when, Jesus, are you going to change the dynamic and when is Israel gonna rise up? And, and you know what? That is a very natural and a very human question. And honestly, if I can reflect this back to us all right now, we are still preoccupied with that kind of crap. Because in the world that we're sitting in today, we still get frustrated that things are not convenient and favorable for us like maybe we want them to be. I'm not gonna criticize that. I'm just gonna point it out. And please don't hear me say that we should give no regard to the circumstances of what we're living in. I don't think Jesus is saying that. His purposes are just better and bigger, more powerful. 
But it is a very human thing to look at the circumstances, to look at injustice, to look at the power being asserted over us and the complications that that creates for us sometimes in the kingdom of God to ask, when is this gonna not be here? Because we as a culture have perpetually, even historically, been addicted to comfort and convenience. And that is not a kingdom value. So the disciples asked this question, when is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, let me, before I get into what Jesus does say to them in response, I want to I bring up a kingdom principle of restoration. And this is true whether it's our own hearts and minds, our own maturity, our own, whatever, whatever context you want to put it in, this exists for us here and now, this concept that I'm going to talk about. It's, I'm, I call it the now and the not yet. It's like this when we talk about being sanctified. And sanctified is a fancy term spiritually for like being made like Christ. When we accept Christ and we are saved, we are made like Christ. And we are being made like Christ. And Someday we will be made like Christ. It's kind of like, I'm saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. I am born again. I'm being born again. I will be born again. It's this tension where it's the now and the not yet. And that's, that's a kingdom concept that happens all the time. It's like, I am like Christ, kind of, ish. Ask my wife. Ask my kids, you know, but I'm way more like Christ than I was when I first came to know Jesus. But in him, when I accepted him and I pledged my allegiance to Jesus, my heart to him, I was made like Christ and I'm being made like Christ. And someday when all this is gone and we are in glory with him, we will be made like him. And so something about the kingdom being restored is that same reality And even before this moment, if we look back in John 4, which is one of my favorite, favorite stories in the scripture, it's Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman. And again, Kim said this, I think, last week. If you haven't watched this series, The Chosen, what is your problem? (laughs) On on, On episode eight of season one of The Chosen, it's the Samaritan woman at the well And I cried my way through that entire freaking episode because that story is one of my favorite stories in all of scripture from my history of sexual brokenness. This is a sexually broken Samaritan woman, the bottom of the social food chain. And Jesus declares to her the reality of who he is more clearly than he does to his own disciples, which says to me and very personal to me that Jesus cares about the sexually broken. But more than that, Jesus says to her in John 4, verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, saying to her that the nationalism that she's experiencing as a Samaritan, where the Jews said you can only worship God on this mountain in this temple, and by the way, as a Samaritan, you're not welcome here, meaning her sins of her sexual sin cannot be forgiven because she cannot go offer her sacrifice for forgiveness to the God she believes in because she's pushed out nationally as a Samaritan. And she's wrestling with this and struggling with this of wanting to be forgiven, cannot access God. And Jesus says, a time is coming 
when it won't matter where you are, meaning the national significance of Israel is not gonna be the thing that prevents you from coming to God because God is here and now. He says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. Now coming will come. It's the same principle. A time has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks God is spirit and worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Seriously, watch the episode for crying out loud. <laughs> now, the nationalist bent that they have, these disciples have, again, I told you, it's, it's reasonable. It's understandable on a human level. We all want it. How many of us, I mean, I know I want God to come and sort out the big mess that we're experiencing right now. I would love to live current day in a nation that all surrenders to Jesus and all loves Jesus and all conforms to what Jesus says. My Lord, it would be a much better place to raise my kids, but not yet. But there is a day coming. There will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that has been told to us in Isaiah 45, 23, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, Romans 14, 11, and Revelation 22, 1 through 5. There is a day coming when all of this, all of this mess, all this rebellion, all this sin that destroys and mars and complicates and breaks our hearts and our world will submit to the lordship of King Jesus. It is coming the kingdom is already here. The day is coming. Do you see the tension? And the disciples are asking that very honest, very human, very understandable question. Are you going to restore Israel? And Jesus replies to them. It is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, redirecting them to say, number one, the thing that you're desiring, you and even he does not know the day of that appointment. He even says, only the Father knows that day where every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, but behold the underlying truth. You will receive power when you are filled with the Holy Spirit and then says to them, not just for Jerusalem or the Jew, not just for Judea and for Samaria and for every other nation, pushing them out of that nationalist mindset and saying, get your eyes on the true kingdom reality. And can I take a pause for a minute and say the same thing to all of us? Get your eyes off of that part and get your eyes onto the kingdom of God. And again, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we don't have things to do here and now that can bring some order and can bring some restoration. For crying out loud, in a month and a half, I am going to Washington, D.C. to talk to lawmakers. 
I do that because things that, don't clap on that yet, thank you though. I appreciate, thank you, oh, warm fuzzy. But no, there are things out of order. And, but I'll tell you this, if I went trying to go reclaim this nation for Jesus, I've already missed it. But if I go like I am going to proclaim what God has done in my life, and the power of Jesus to redeem those who are broken and hurting and desperate, then I am fulfilling this because I have my eyes on the kingdom of God, not on this nation, but on the kingdom of God and what he wants to do in this nation and around the world. We have things we can do, but get our minds off of the comfort and convenience of whatever nationalism we are trapped in because it's bigger than that. Nations will pass, but the kingdom of God will endure forever. And we need to be about the kingdom, which will impact our nation, but do you see what I'm saying? Okay. When he says this, this is foreshadowing in the exact same conversation that being baptized with the Holy Spirit, when God's spirit is poured out, the kingdom is restored. The spirit of God is here. And I'm not gonna step on what will be Ryan's message next week in Acts 2, but and where the Holy, you know, wow, you know, the fire, you know, but that part's coming. The now, the soon, the happening, and the not yet. It's all here. And we exist in that same tension. Consequently, right after he said this, scripture says, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. It's like, peace out. And then something happens in, in verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, <laughs> I mean... And what's beautiful about this, and I love about the writings that Luke does, is you can go back to Luke and the, the tomb when, when the women going to the tomb are looking for Jesus and two men dressed in white say, hey, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking at the sky? Basically saying, look alive. There's things to do. Get out of this stupor and go. You've been giving your, you've been giving your marching orders. Go. He will come back, not yet, but go. He says, um, the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Eventually. We still waiting. Sometimes I look at the sky. <laughs> Mainly after a day that's been real crap. Anyone else relate to that? Like you're like, come on! Uh! It would be really helpful if an angel would appear and be like, Drew, you've got things to do. Go on. <laughs> Shut up. The Holy Spirit does say that to me. Anyone else, when you get snarky and like, like whining like a little baby, like, <laughs> Drew, I told you what to do. Go do it. Okay. Any, raise of hand. Anyone else who relates to that, please. All right. Not everyone raised their hand. Shut your faces. I know. I know y'all have done that in one sense or another. We all do. It's one of those universal truths. So here they are. They, they have been confronted in this nationalist mindset. They've been redirected to this present reality of the kingdom of God. They've been told, don't stand there looking at the sky. Go. Because soon, 
And by soon, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit is going to fall on them and it's going to give them power. So this is the context that, that this is happening where they're asking, uh, and their, their, their mind has been shifted. Jesus has demonstrated his physical presence and then he's, you know, beamed up. <laughs> that was crass, sorry. <laughs> this is not Star Trek. Um, and then immediately after that, they have to deal with this reality, this emotional reality that of their 12, one had in fact betrayed Jesus. And now they have to replace him. And this is where Acts in chapter one takes this turn where it says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they had been staying. Those presents were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering around 120 and said, brothers and sisters, in the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago, both uh, through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Can you imagine the heartache of having to recognize that a person that you've been traveling with, with the Messiah for three years-ish, has betrayed Jesus unto death? There's had to be a lot of emotion, but Peter rightly is saying, you know what? This had to happen. This was, this was prophesied to happen. And now we have to, just like it was, so he goes on to say, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. He was one of their number and shared in our ministry. Verse 18 says, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Again, Luke the physician. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this because, you know, why wouldn't you? So they called the field in their language, Akeldama, which that is the field of blood. Now, I want to pause there for just a second because if you read the book of Matthew, it says that Judas hanged himself. In this account, it says he fell headlong and his intestines spilled out. And some people get caught on the, up on that as a contradiction of Scripture. So I want to take a minute because I think it's really important for us to know and not skip over these things like, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. It's Bible. It's all true. You know, and just like say, you know, it's like, don't ask too many questions. Don't look too hard. I don't want to do that. So I want to take a minute and look at this and help us get over if there is an objection to what seems like a contradiction. We need to do this real quick. So first off, in Matthew 27, 5, he says, he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, departed, and went and hanged himself. Luke is a doctor. Luke is familiar with the human body. Do you know what happens when a hanging body sits in the sun for a long time? It begins to bloat. This is unpleasant. So if you have a weak stomach, go somewhere else to throw up. It, bacteria increases. It begins to bloat. It begins to expand. And eventually what happens is that body's gonna... Lots of things are gonna happen. If, it's hang, if he's hanging by the neck that tissue is going to begin to rot and the strength of the spine and the head is gonna give way, head might pop off, body might fall, is bloated, splat. It's gross. Now that's one concept and Luke the physician would have wanted to include the physical reality of what happened. There's another way to look at it 
which would also address the seeming contradiction. But we can, we can know by what Luke said is this actually happened because he's so concerned with accuracy. But what about Matthew when he says he hung himself? Well, there's, there's many different commentaries on this. One is that that process happened where he's hanging, rot, felt, boom, splat, truth. The other, if you look at Esther 5, verse 14, and if you know the story of Esther, I'm not gonna go into all of it, but you had Haman who was really bad. He had Mordecai who was representing the Jews. Haman planned on killing Mordecai by hanging him. Hanging him, meaning have a pole set up reaching the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Hanging could have meant gallows. It could have meant impaled on a pole. And if you're impaled on a pole, you're, you might burst open and spill out. Or you might rot and fall and splat. Either way, there's accuracy in what's being said. If Matthew meant hanged as in impaled or if Matthew meant hanged and then he rotted and fell or if it was impaled, either way, Accurate and gross. Moving on. Spend enough time on that grossness. Verse 20 of Acts, again, said, swore, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let no one dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time and was living among us with Jesus, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. They prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles, and thus ends chapter one. But I want to say a few things about that. I want to, well, I'm running out of, always running out of time. Drew. There's, has anyone ever faced a decision with the Lord and you're praying for wisdom like the disciples and you're wrestling and maybe, maybe you get stuck in a place of indecision? Anyone? Just me? And you're like, what is the minute little pinpoint will of God that I can do here? And I won't make a decision unless I do it. And yet the disciples who would walk with Jesus, Lord, you know our hearts, roll the dice. Can I just say that, that there's not a criticism on this? They have faith that God will lead even the most simple of gestures. And because it is a decision that who knows what the right one is, the will of God is not so minute and small that if we make a mistake, we'll miss it. God's will is much bigger. God is much more capable to do and to work within our own choices, even if they are not wise, even if they are haphazard. He has the ability to work within them because he is God. So can I say as a challenge, if you're wrestling with a choice and you're paralyzed with fear that you're gonna make the wrong choice, can I just tell you, have some faith and make a choice. I wish I could say more about that, but I'm almost out of time, so I won't. But I want to say this. In all of this, in this whole first chapter, the takeaway that I want us to be left with as a platform to walk into Acts with is this one word, faith. 
God is calling us to faith in his power and ability to work miraculously through these frail vessels. So do me a favor, everyone stand, please. What are the places in your life right now where you are not sure or you're frustrated with the circumstances where you can't see the wisdom or the purposes of God in what's going on or where your expectations and the reality of what's playing out have no possible way of matching up? What are the places in your life right now where maybe the Lord is impressing on your heart to move but you're afraid? Maybe paralyzed with fear, maybe paralyzed with indecision, maybe worried that you're just not gonna make the right choice. Or you're doubting God's ability to move and work within you. Let's face facts. We are in a time where there are big, overwhelming problems. Big and overwhelming issues facing our, our nation and our world and just in here. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, Jesus himself, is with you and has every ability to work miraculously and powerfully, not in spite of your circumstances, but through them. What is it in your life right now that you're facing that you don't see the fingerprints of God in it? Be vulnerable for a minute, and you don't have to say it because this would take forever, but raise your hand if there's something personally or if you're just looking at the world and going, what are you doing, God? Raise your hand if there's a conflict or something in you that you're like, I don't know. You're, raise them higher. Everyone look around. You're not alone. But can we do this? Keep your hand up and close your eyes. God, will you impart faith? Will you impart faith to us? Faith that looks at circumstances not as an obstacle to overcome, but a display of what your glory and your power can do through them. God, impart faith to those of us who are wrestling to know your purposes and your plan and your will, to know your presence and your power in and through us to feel and believe that your eyes are on us and that you're for us. Lord, I wanna, I wanna repeat the words that we sang earlier. No one wants to fix this more than you. No one wants to restore us to kingdom purposes more than you. So God, our circumstances do not circumvent the purpose of your purposes. They don't. They are more often than not just one more way that your glory is displayed powerfully. So God, for every heart, for every hand, for every person watching online who feels and knows this too, and I might not see you raising your hand in your living rooms, but raise your freaking hands. <laughs> for every hand and every heart, impart fresh faith. The book of Acts didn't end, guys. We're still in it. We still have works to do. 
And let me be a substitute for that snarky angel couple and say, stop looking at the sky. Stop worrying about a right or perfect decision and by faith, move. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. And we believe you that your kingdom is here and now and is coming Help us know how to partner with that in power and in faith. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out in faith and conquer it. Amen.